Welcome to the Why Invest podcast with me, Doug Barnett. In this series, we want to demystify the worlds of finance and investment. We're going to be speaking with industry experts, strategists, fund managers, and financial planners. We'll hear from investment professionals who are at the top of their game, but also entrepreneurs who need investment, technology specialists disrupting the world of investment, and good old-fashioned active allocators of capital. Who is leading the charge? Who is disrupting? Who is being disrupted? How does the frenetic political and economic backdrop feed into the investment process and really understand why we invest in the first place? Welcome to the Why Invest podcast with me, Doug Barnett, Portfolio Manager here at Waverton. Now, bond managers aren't known for their charisma, which is why it was so refreshing to talk to James Carter, credit analyst in our bond team at Waverton. Our conversation was wide ranging. We talked about why we invest in bonds, the history of bonds, uh, where James is finding his most exciting ideas. And he gave a pretty strong argument for hiring an active bond manager who is nimble enough to take advantage of market inefficiencies over allocating to passive structures. So without further ado, this is the Why Invest podcast. The information provided during this podcast does not constitute investment advice and should not be relied on as such. It should not be considered a solicitation to buy or an offer to sell a security. James Carter, credit analyst here at Waverton Investment Management, welcome to the podcast. Um, James, we're going to be talking about bonds today. I'm going to start by asking you, what's the history of bonds? How long have bonds been in existence? Well, the first recorded bond actually dates back to 2400 BC, way before my time here. But I would say there are probably a few faces in Waverton that are probably quite close to that. Who have seen it, yeah, (laughs) who have seen it all. I Um, I know the ones you mean. (laughs) And that that was a stone discovered in Mesopotamia, which is present day Iraq. And it was based on corn, which was the currency of the time. So, you know, these are, these are historical. These are, these have been going on as long as, as financial markets have existed or even before that. However, the most earliest bonds were issued by governments and the official ones, at least, were mainly used to fund wars. So if we look at the first official government bond, that was actually our very own Bank of England. It was in 1693. It was actually used to raise money to fund a war against France, of all things. And that, in essence, is what a bond is. It is a um, security, a debt security. It is a way for well, governments or companies to finance themselves through borrowing. Yes, to either finance ongoing expenditure, a project, um, War. Like a war, yes, <laughs> as, as it has traditionally been mm-hmm. the case. Um, so, you know, if you, if you look back at history, World War II, there was a huge surge in debt mm-hmm. um, through many, many major economies that were taking part. And can you give us a size of the, I mean, get a sense of the size of the bond market, um, both globally and perhaps in the UK? Well, it's massive. The, the global debt amounts to $255 trillion at my last count. Um, and that's actually 40% higher than at the onset of the 2008 financial crisis. And in contrast to, if you look at the global stock market, that's around $85 trillion in size. So it dwarfs that. 
that basically the debt to equity of the world is like three. Okay, so it dwarfs the equity markets. And really, I suppose when people think about financial markets, they think about the equity markets rather than the, the bond markets, perhaps incorrectly. Well, is there a distinction? And what's the difference between bonds and loans? Yes, we often use fixed income as the blanket name for this asset class that I work in. Uh, bonds is a part of that. And bonds is different to a loan that a company ha- would have, or perhaps you or I would have, um, because they, they enable companies and governments to borrow large sums of money, whereas a loan is often smaller. Uh, it's still usually over a set period in return for an interest, much like a loan. But it's on a tradable market, whereas a loan is usually non-tradable. It's held for the entire term by a bank. A bond has many investors, often it could be a billion dollars, it could be more than that, and it's tradable. So people aren't often investing in a 10-year bond and holding it for the 10 years. They're trading them with buyers and sellers on a market. That liquidity doesn't exist traditionally in a loan market. So there's some slight differences. And then going from the company's perspective, why would they choose bond financing or debt financing, uh, as it is from, from, from their perspective, over equity financing, so um, issuing new shares to existing yeah. So debt is cheaper than issuing more equity for a company. Um, and a company will traditionally want to optimise their balance sheet with some debt on the basis that if they can invest the proceeds from a bond, so say they uh, issue a bond of $1 billion and they invest that in a project and that has a return in excess of the coupon they're paying for that bond. Let's say the bond is a 5% coupon and the return they get on this project, this capital expenditure program is 10%. Fantastic, that is better for them than raising equity. So, and diluting so, themselves. Yes, mm-hmm. however, there is a balancing act because the higher leverage, the more debt you issue is a higher risk because you're creating a larger liability in terms of your interest expense. So you are adding risk. And that, of course, raised risk raises your uh, cost of equity as well. So um, it's a double-edged sword. You need to find the right balance, but it can be very optimal for a company to have um, an amount of debt. I mean, arguably, over the last, let's say, 10 years, where we've had very, very low interest rates, I mean, have we seen more and more corporates going to the bond market rather than the equity market to raise finance? We certainly have. So, um, you know, as I said earlier, the, the, the bond, the global debt market is so large and it's so much larger than it was even 10 years ago, even a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. And a large reason for that is it is so cheap to borrow money, just like it would be cheap for you to have a larger mortgage and a larger house if you could have a mortgage rate of 1% versus... You know, ten years ago, four or five yeah. percent. Yeah, yeah. You'll borrow as much as you can because you can afford to. So the companies are doing the same, and you can't blame them for that. So they are issuing more debt, and investors are eating it up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, interesting. Well, you've got a very large and growing um, universe to be operating in. That remind me. How do you um, how do you whittle this down? So you know what is what is your process on um, uh, analyzing these bonds? And you know how do they then for therefore fit? Maybe second question: How do they therefore fit within the portfolios? Yeah. So when we look at bonds, um, we have three key decision pillars. Those are duration, credit, and currency. I'm afraid you, you're going to have to start by um, uh, defining duration. Okay. Um, 
it's not to be confused with maturity. So it's measured in years still. That's where the confusion often comes from. And it is the sensitivity of the bond to a change in interest rates. So simply put, if the Bank of England raised the rate of interest by 1%, so from now being 0.1% to 1.1%, for example, a bond with a duration of 10 years would fall in price terms by 10%. And under the same logic, a bond with a duration of two years would fall by only 2%. So the longer the duration of a bond, the higher sensitivity to interest rates. So the higher interest rate move, interest rate risk you're taking. Yeah. Yes. So um, over the last 30 years, we've been on a bull run for interest rates, whereby the interest rate in most developed markets have fallen from eye-wateringly high levels um, relative to where they are now, you know, five, six, seven, eight percent, and they've just continuously fallen. For investors who have invested in those bonds, in price terms, they've had a huge appreciation of capital value as well as those coupon incomes that they receive. So it's often not just when you think about bonds, you think you're going to get your fixed income every year, your coupon payment, your 2%, your 3%. But actually, over the last 30 plus years, people have been receiving a huge capital appreciation because of a falling interest rate environment. Um, so we better just define capital returns and income returns. Both are uh, generated when holding a bond. Yeah. So your income return is what you would get if you held a bond until maturity. So a bond is issued at 100 and you are going to get your coupon from the start until the end. So if that coupon was 2% and the bond was issued at par, which is at 100, you would receive that every year until maturity and you'd get your 2% total return. Now, if instead we are buying and selling bonds and interest rates are falling, the value of your bond, the price of your bond is going to increase because other bonds being issued at that time will be at lower interest rates. So the price of your bond can rise uh, to mean the yield will be very similar to the other bonds being issued at that time. So there is also capital appreciation and that has been a huge driver of returns um, over the last 30 years for bonds. Because the interest rates have come down by they such a degree. They have been falling to, mm -hmm. to a state now where they're you know, effectively negative in some mm -hmm. countries. So just going back to your three pillars, we talked about duration. Um, can you define credit, what you mean by credit and currency? So currency is, is quite a simple one. A company will issue debt in either hard currency or local currency, we say. Um, hard currency would be US dollars or could be sterling, where its actual domicile is in perhaps an emerging market. So that would be a South African company that does most of its business in Rand issuing a dollar bond. That's a hard currency bond. This but, could be a South African company, but it also could be the South African government. Yeah, Indeed. Yeah. So the South African government would also issue dollar bonds as well as South African Rand bonds. So, so we have a choice to make whether we go local or hard currency. Local currency, because interest rates in those regions are higher, they tend to have a larger carry, a larger interest rate, um, and that can somewhat mitigate the Relative volatility to your, in that currency. The carry being the interest rate difference between your own currency yes. and the currency um, uh, in yeah. question. So an example of that would be, uh, let's stick to the South Africa example, uh, the interest rate might be 4 or 5% there, whereas the interest rate in the US is 
less than 1%. So you're getting, you know, 4 or 5% or 3 or 4% pickup in interest rate, which we call a carry, which you get, which um, if the currency stayed where it was, you would actually get outsized return. If the currency was to depreciate, as long as it doesn't depreciate by more than that interest rate differential, um, you're still okay. But there obviously is the risk of losing money. Now, this is different when you think about currency to equities, because in equities, if a currency falls, the earnings of the company, if it's, um, if it's an international company, will actually rise. Mm-hmm. Bonds don't have that same mm-hmm. um, sort of thing. Yeah. It doesn't have the same link. So you have to be very careful with uh, when you're investing cross-currency in bonds. You don't take too much risk. Um, of course, you can hedge away the currency, but it's a big decision, uh, which perhaps an equity investor won't have as much of a focus mm-hmm. on. So that's um, pillar number two, um, currency. Um, both the drivers of currency duration returns are more macro um, in their makeup. Um, what about credit? So credit is is more is my bread and butter. Um, it's um, it's often measured via credit rating. So credit rating is a scale. It starts at AAA. So a AAA rated economy or company has the highest, strongest credit profile um, and very low to no risk. Or there's full, no, there's disclo- nothing. full disclosure here, James, you used to work at one of these uh, credit ratings. Yes, I did work at Moody's right. um, and I, I was a credit ratings analyst. Um, I've now come to greener pastures. Mm. Um, but Quite literally. So, so a AAA rated company, uh, an example would be Microsoft. And an example of a AAA rated economy would be Germany. Mm-hmm. So Microsoft, because it um, has robust earnings visibility, it's solvent, it's, it's big. The scale. Germany, ditto. Um, you know, it's not going to um, default, or it's, it's very unlikely to default on its debt. So the probability of it defaulting on its debt is negative. Well. Mm-hmm. Um, so we assign that to AAA rating, mm-hmm. and that scale goes down. It has, it has sort of, it goes to AA plus, AA, AA minus, and it goes to the single A's, triple B's, double B's, single B's, mm-hmm. default. Mm-hmm. Now. Anything below triple B, mm-hmm. so double Bs, single Bs, that's what we call high yield or junk bonds. Mm-hmm. Anything above triple B is investment grade, mm-hmm. uh, indicating lower risk. And that corresponds, how low you go in that credit scale corresponds, generally speaking, with the amount of yield pickup in terms of a risk premium you're going to earn on your investment. So um, let's stick to the same um, example as earlier, if Germany issues a bond, they will issue it effectively at the uh, European Central Bank's interest rate, you know, with a with a spread, a, a risk premium of nothing because they don't have to pay any risk premium because mm-hmm. they are the creme de la creme mm-hmm. of issuers. Mm-hmm. Now, if South Africa was to issue a bond in the same currency, they would have to issue that with a risk premium, which in credit terms we call a spread credit spread over and above what Germany have to. That might be 200 basis points, so 2%, might be 3%. And the higher risk that issuer is, the more 
yield or so the larger coupon they're going to have to so for as an investor it's a risk reward basis you know you may go and buy um south african government bonds and you will get a three percent four percent uh spread over a german government bond but you're taking more political risk more um currency risk as we've talked about um, yes etc okay. yes um so that's where um, when we talked right at the start, why do you invest in bonds? We talked about it being lower risk in equities. Um, there are huge diversification benefits for bonds and holding long duration. But actually, if you invest too much in credit, you're actually going to have actually some correlation with equities because you're taking risk, you're taking market risk. A country's credit risk is very much like its default risk. And when the economy is in a downturn, solvency becomes a problem and the credit quality of companies tends to worsen. So the bonds fall in value to compensate investors for that rise in risk. So you will actually find that credit can be positive correlated with equities, whereas bonds traditionally you talk about as being safe. Mm-hmm. I see. Staying on bonds for a moment, um, we know that we have $14 trillion worth of bonds trading at negative yields, so negative interest rates. In other words, the investor is guaranteed to lose money uh, in investing in those. Why would any investor do that? It sounds ludicrous, I know. Um, and on the most part, where we can help it, us at Waverton, we don't invest in negative yielding debt. It's just it's a very difficult concept to get your head around. Um, however, investors that do invest in these negative yields and I should note that these negative yields are generally coming from euro and Japanese yen denominated bonds because that's where the base rates are so low or if in those examples negative. Um, we, we tend not to, but the investors that do are expecting that interest rates are going to stay lower for longer. They're expecting perhaps the interest rates are going to even fall from their negative level. And that is going to create the capital appreciation because, of course... So that was number one in when going back to our you know, dissecting bond returns. You can have capital appreciation or you can have income generation. You're not going to get any income generation. From you're going to lose. You're going to lose income. your income generation. But I think what you're saying is you may get capital appreciation yes. if a negative 1% yielding bond goes to 2%. So, so investors are thinking that... Interest rates are going to continue to stay low. They're going to go down and I'm going to have capital appreciation. And I'm comfortable with the fact that I will definitely lose income. Moving on to the um, much talked about and very important um, active versus passive um, debate. Um, Now, we have the the debate, you know, is, is in full flow within the equity space. Um, you know, God knows how many um, active managers in the US, for example, underperform um, the benchmark. Or how does the argument, how's the argument set out um, in the bond market uh, and fixed income market more broadly? Um, you have an increase, like you do in equities, of um, exchange traded funds, sort of the size of these funds increasing in bonds as well as in equities, and it's growing in bonds. However, our view is that it's incredibly risky. Um, and the reason is perhaps not when everything is appreciating in value, but it's when it turns around. So when you think about bond indices, 
which these passive funds, you know, are tracking a bond index. These are filled with the most indebted companies, the likes of AT&T, Ford, whereas in equities, they're filled with often the companies with the largest market caps. Mm. So the largest companies that might have a correlation with the strength of the company. In bonds, it's actually quite the opposite. Do you really want to invest in an index that's largest constituents of the companies holding the most debt? Um, so that's quite unattractive at first glance. But what you've got is the bond market is less and less liquid than it used to be. And that's because the investment banks that are acting as the intermediaries are no longer holding inventory. So if I try and buy or sell a bond, I go to the investment bank and say, I'd like to buy this Ford bond. They're no longer holding that. And this is um, as a result of regulation brought about in 2010? Yes, absolutely. So uh, the regulators don't want the investment banks to take as much risk in inventory. Mm -hmm. So um, they're matching buyers and sellers. It's interesting this because arguably the regulator has made the bond market less efficient. Would that be fair? I think so. I think so. Um, And and, more unstable? Well, it remains to be seen. Um, But what we're going to find, and and we've seen glimpses of it, but when everyone is making money and bonds are going up, it's not really a problem. When there's a huge solvency event and people need to rush to the door. The investment banks aren't holding any inventory and everyone on the market is a seller and no one is a buyer. It's going to be very hard for people to actually sell these bonds. And these passive funds are going to lose an incredible amount of money because these funds are huge. They have huge amounts of debt and they're all trying to rush to the door. And it might actually be a lot smaller than they remember it. The door, you mean? The door. (laughs) That's interesting. Now, James, you've done... I'm not going to guess, but I think it's certainly less than 10 years. Um, you're less than 10 years into your career. You probably have a good handle on, on what makes a good invest, a bond investor. If you're talking to people who are maybe starting out, you know, very new to the business, um, what do you think the kind of attributes they should sort of aspire to adopt to be a good bond investor? Well, when we were talking about the three decision pillars with investing, we talked about the credit, which is fundamental, it's bottom-up, it's looking at financials, leverage, coverage, business risk. But then we also talked about currency and duration and how big a part they have to play, which is top-down, it's macroeconomics. So I think coming into bond investing, you have to have a balance between your knowledge of economics and macro um, fundamentals. Mm -hmm. A sort of top-down view as well. Yes. In addition to your bottom-up fundamental credit analysis, and I think the bond, the best bond investors are the ones that can balance both of those variables um, and succeed by, you know, reducing your credit risk when you expect a downturn, uh, increasing your duration when you expect a downturn, reducing your emerging market currency risk when you have downturn, and vice versa. So it's so there are lots of moving parts. That, I'd say, is the key. Mm. And when we think about sort of top bond investors, um, who, do you support, who, who are your pinups? Uh, sorry, who do you have in your bedroom above your bed? Um, there's, a, there's a fantastic bond investor called Jeff Keane. I'm not sure if you've heard of him. <laughs> <laughs> he happens to be so my have, boss. You, know, you have a picture of him above your bedroom. <laughs> uh, I'll, no comment on that. No comment on but, that. But I think one real thing to focus on with 
looking at bond investors is you need to find a bond investor running a fund that isn't too large enough. No. There are there are a number of multi-billion dollar funds from these superstar fund managers. But these these guys have no choice but to be slaves to the new issue market because the liquidity in the secondary market is dwindling. They very much have to follow the index. And it, they really find it hard to add value to investors. When the seas get rough, these funds act as huge tanker ships. They struggle to turn due to their size. So I'd say a real focus when looking at a bond investor isn't necessarily looking for the superstar names. It's looking for those funds that have a good track record, but those that are nimble enough and enable you to be more opportunistic, going into slightly smaller issues, being picky with what you do and indeed don't invest in. Mm. Um, And in the longer term, it may, of course, be important to have flexibility in your duration because interest rates... I I would expect can't keep going down like they have in the last 30 years. And at one point, you're going to have to start focusing on capital protection Mm -hmm. uh, because you're not going to have these capital gains every single year. Mm. Um, So perhaps even having a fund that can go negative duration or at least have a very low duration, not just tracking the index, they're going to be the winners, I think, looking forward to the next 10 years. Interesting. James, where are you finding your best ideas at the moment? Well, we've found since um, the developed market central banks, so the ECB, the Bank of England, and the Fed, have been buying uh, investment-grade corporate bonds, the spread, so that's the risk premium you're getting um, ahead of holding a government bond, are getting smaller and smaller. So the payoff for taking risk is becoming less and less attractive. So where we've found some value, is in emerging market debt. So that's the conversation I had earlier with you about the local currency versus the hard currency. So the local currency can be attractive if you find those currencies that have high carry, low volatility, an example being Indonesian rupiah. So we found a couple of interesting ideas there. But then also in the hard currency bonds, where you're getting this emerging market risk premium, despite often very strong fundamentals, and we've found that over the last few years... When you say strong fundamental, fundamentals, um, macro fundamentals or um, company fundamentals? Both. Both. So examples where we've been looking at countries like Kuwait, uh, Qatar, where they have some quasi-sovereign bonds. Uh, we better just explain what quasi-sovereign bonds are. So they are um, bonds that are not government, but they're not quite corporate. They sit in between. So they're often made majority owned or they could perhaps be fully owned by the government, but the debt isn't guaranteed by the government. So Saudi Aramco. Saudi Aramco is an excellent example. So it's um, made majority owned by uh, Saudi Arabia, and those bonds uh, do give you a yield pickup versus if you were to invest into Saudi Arabia government. Um, it's very small, but they do. And um, they have fantastic fundamentals. It's one of the uh, most fundamentally sound companies in the world, despite oil trading at around 40 where it is now. So but how do you, I mean, how does one, um, and I suppose it probably comes under the credit um, bucket of your analysis, but you know, how does one um, price in political risk? It's certainly a consideration both, both in that, but also um, in the ESG. So when you look at Saudi Arabia, it's a very sensitive subject with, you know, with, the news flow that's been going around Saudi Arabia for the last few years and continues to to rattle around the markets. You have to be careful. Um, I 
think one thing to note with a bond investor is you are looking often short term if you're investing in short dated bonds. So if we're going into a region where we're a bit nervous about the geopolitics or perhaps fundamentals of the sector such as oil which may be heading down uh, if we look 20 30 40 years into the future we do tend to look at those bonds on a two or three year horizon so we're investing bonds with maturity dates of 2022 or 2023 which gives us some security that there's not going to be any huge fundamental change in the picture but it's of course a risk and we of course expect to be paid for that geopolitical or as i said esg risk um, and Let's go back to your best ideas. Can you um, maybe give an example um, of um, you know a, a credit, either government, or a, a, either a government bond or corporate bond um, that you've been working on recently? Yeah. So, so this this touches slightly on my emerging market hard currency theme. We we recently um, invested in a bond from a company or an issuer called Helios Towers. Now, this is a London listed wireless telecom tower company, much like American Towers in the US. And this operates towers across underserved parts of Africa. Now, 90% of this region is without fixed line telecommunications. So wireless is really the key infrastructure. And the company operates the towers cheaper than the mobile network operators, as it has multiple tenants at each tower. So although the region, because these towers are in Africa, um, sub-Saharan Africa as well, um, although the region is high risk and it constrains the bond's credit rating because credit rating is often constrained by the ceiling of the sovereign in which it operates. So the country's yeah. credit risk, essentially. Yeah. The, the assets themselves are highly defensive in nature. They have predictable long-term cash flows and the clients themselves are not the end client. They're the blue chip mobile network operators, including Orange, Vodafone, Airtel, Millicom. So we think actually this bond, which has a very striking yield of 7%, actually is pretty good value for five years of um, duration. Mm -hmm. And there are also various pricing adjusters that limit FX risk. And um, all in all, we think this is a defensive high yielder with a decent carry. And it's also a good diversifier because there aren't a huge amount of African bonds trading, you know, out of London in US dollars. Uh, so it really complements some of our portfolios. I see. So good idea generation across across the globe. Um, James, I must talk talk to you. I'm afraid um, about blow ups. Where do you think are common mistakes for bond investors? Um, and perhaps how do you avoid them? It's a very good question. Um, I think you need to be very careful um, to avoid investing in the companies with the largest amount of debt. So this is something that the passive investor might not be able to get away from. But if you look at certain issuers, um, I'll mention Ford, not that I think it has an immediate solvency issue, but uh, some of these companies have hundreds of billions in debt. And if the auto sector is going to struggle to adjust to the industry dynamics of going electric vehicle, decarbonization, it's still got to service this $100 billion of debt. So you have to be a bit careful of the sustainability of the amount of debt a company has on its balance sheet. 
you know, the equity price might keep falling, but that huge amount of debt stays the same. So we're always mindful of the amount of leverage a company has. So it's, um, and also the coverage, which is almost more significant. So that is interest coverage and that's its ability to repay the mm-hmm. debt because a company can have astronomical amounts of debt and often these utility companies do, but they can actually refinance themselves and issue at very low yields. So the actual burden of the debt is very low. Whereas if a company had a similar amount of debt but was really struggling to refinance at an attractive level or in fact, it's just interest rates are very high because it wasn't seen favorably by the markets. That becomes a real problem for the solvency of the company in the longer term. And that's what we tend to really focus on and try to avoid. Mm-hmm. Final question, James. What's keeping you up at night at the moment within the bond market? So there are a number of things. Um, one is bonds with incredibly high duration. Um, it, you know, it's becoming a theme in this podcast, but um, we, you know, as a desk, um, are worried about the long-term risks of duration. Uh, we're conservatively positioned. We tend to be on the lower end of the spectrum in terms of duration because we think over the long term it's going to be very difficult to protect capital uh, when interest rates rise. So we're worried about that. We're slightly worried about the solvency uh, of some companies coming out of this crisis. Uh, including some sort of bricks and mortar retail companies, which were already in a little bit of trouble. And this, this crisis is only exacerbating that. Um, and then we also are slightly worried about the US dollar. We think the US dollar could materially weaken. So in the global fund, which is US dollar based, um, we actually are diversifying our currency uh, exposure away from the US dollar to to protect ourselves against um, long-term depreciation of the currency, as indicated by some of the macro fundamentals we're seeing. Brilliant. Exactly on script. Duration, currency, uh, and solvency. I don't get any sleep. (laughs) James Carter, thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the Why Invest podcast with me, Doug Barnett, and our guest this week, James Carter. If you would like any more information on any of the topics discussed in this podcast, please head to our website at waverton.co.uk. If you enjoyed this week's podcast, please subscribe to the show or even better, please rate it and review it on your chosen podcast platform or indeed tell your friends. Thank you.